This is Stories with a Voice, a podcast focused on spreading understanding and compassion about serious topics. This season is called Students of Struggle, a series of interviews with college students and affiliates about their personal experiences with suicide. The goal of sharing these stories is to increase hope and empathy. The following episode includes a discussion about suicide, anxiety, depression, and feelings of hopelessness, which may be triggering for some. Safety always comes first. If you or someone you know is not safe and needs help, please reach out and call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is available 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-8255. The views and opinions of this podcast do not represent any organization and are solely the opinions of the participants. I'm your host, Virginia Henry. This episode is about me. It's my story with regards to suicide. Now maybe you'll understand why this topic is so important to me and why I started this podcast. I asked my friend McKinley Carr to ask me a few questions to help me tell my story. Virginia, what brings you hope? What brings me hope is the idea that the idea of redemption. You can see that very consistently in not just religion, but psychology and all kinds of fields of study where change is still possible regardless of where you're at. And that's very helpful to me to know that you don't have to let your past or your decisions define you forever. You can continue to evolve and become somebody new if that's what you want. And for me, that's been a very hopeful thing that's helped me to move forward past dramatic things in my life. And so I would say redemption brings me hope. I like that. The, the idea that nothing, no circumstance is permanent. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Now, when are times when you would feel a, a loss of hope or a lack of hope? Some might say hopeless. A feeling of hopelessness often is present in my life when I lose sight of the idea of redemption, where you feel that this is who I am. I am... A monster or I am a failure and you feel like you will always be that that can feel very dark and very hopeless and, and very heavy feeling alone also contributes hugely to that feeling if you feel even if you're surrounded by people and you know you have people who care about you but you just feel like they can't quite reach you where you are or you can't reach out to them where they are that psychological isolation is so hard to break out of and realize that you can reach out and and you can make a connection with somebody else when you feel like you can't or when I felt like I couldn't I felt alone and therefore hopeless 
oftentimes I think that redemption comes from that connection. So I love those thoughts. Now, Virginia, I know that because you're a kind, open-hearted soul, (laughs) you have a natural passion for ideas and things like suicide prevention. But because we're close friends, I mean, you're one of my favorite people, I also happen to know that you've had some very personal experiences that have led you to be very passionate about this topic. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit of your story and your experience with suicide. Of course. That's why we're here, (laughs) to facilitate a conversation about this and to share personal experiences so others can know what it's like. And I just want to put a forward out there that it's not easy for me to talk about this openly, you know, with my identity out there. It's, It's difficult even right now just because I want to be seen as a strong person. I want to not be branded by thoughts that I've had before or actions that I've taken before. And it's a constant battle to be able to realize that putting a certain story out there about yourself is worth the help that it will serve to other people to know that they're not alone. So I just wanted to preface that to know that if you're somebody out there who struggles to tell your story because you're afraid of how people will think of you, you are also not alone because I feel the same way and I'm here trying to get lots of people to share their stories. So don't let that stop you because you can overcome that and it's worth it to help others. Suicidal thoughts or thoughts of suicide, I used to view it as a phase, you know, a phase of teenagerhood. So that's a thing. And I had had thoughts before, but I didn't really give it much weight because I just viewed it as, ah, it's a thing. You know, it happens to everybody. I recently had, well, recently, 10 months ago, (laughs) I had a baby. She is beautiful and perfect, and I love her with all of my soul. But I really struggled after I had her. I don't think I realized I had probably some postpartum depression because I'm very independent, and I got sick, and not being able to go out and do whatever I wanted because... I didn't feel good because I had this beautiful little baby dependent on me was really difficult. And that kind of carried on into a somewhat of a spiritual crisis, which faith has been a huge foundation in my life forever. It's a huge part of me. It, it, everything that I've done in my life, that is the foundation. So to have that cracked a little bit or shaken was really a little devastating devastating thank you yeah a little devastating and I started to have thoughts about my marriage and I felt like I was going crazy I even started going to counseling because sweet McKinley here (laughs) suggested it not because she thought I was crazy at least, not that you told me. <laughs> all, all the best people are a little crazy. I just had some really great experiences in therapy 
and I saw some little things in Virginia that I'd seen in myself months prior, and I felt like she she really would benefit from it. And I am forever um, in admiration of her courage to take that step and her courage to share her story and experiences about it with us. So I started going to therapy and went with my husband just because I knew I just didn't feel like myself and I wanted to get back to that place of happiness and carefree well you're not ever totally carefree right because we have normal life stressors but you know what I mean and then I everything seemed to come to a head I was having a rough few days emotionally and uh, when I was in those in that mental state I would push people away. So I distanced myself from my wonderful, amazing husband. And he was trying to do his best to give me space, to let me process. And then I read something negative about my faith and my religion online. And it really just, I read it at a time when I was already unstable emotionally. And when I read that, I just felt like I broke. And I felt like I shut down. So I had a little, I had some panic attacks, you know, of hysterical sobbing. And my husband was totally unaware that this was happening. He left to go to class and I was just praying and praying and praying for help and answers because I was demanding answers. (laughs) I wanted to know and I wanted these issues fixed right now. Um, and I felt angry. And I turned to scripture for comfort which and answers, which I have done many times before, which has yielded wonderful results for my life. And this time, what I read seemed pretty condemning. And to me, when I read that, I felt really betrayed by God from somebody who has built their life around a faith in God and made decisions because she felt they were guided by God, I felt really abandoned in that moment. Later, I just felt literally like I was losing my mind. I can't really use the right words to describe it. And I don't know if anybody can. But it almost felt like everything that I held dear in reality was slipping through my fingers like sand. And I couldn't grasp any solid concepts or anything comforting because it all seemed like a lie. It all seemed intangible. I knew that I was in at the same time I had I had the, you know, mental presence to realize that I was not okay. And so I sent a message to my sister. I texted her and I told her, I think I need to go to the hospital. And that's all I said. But I knew because of previous experiences that she had had and conversations that we had had that she would know what that meant. And then I tried to overdose on medication. My husband was at work. It was nighttime. My baby was sleeping. And I knew that by the time that he excuse me (laughs) I didn't realize I was going to get emotional just because I've been talking about this for you know so long with so many other people and hearing their stories 
I knew that by the time he would get back from work, I would be dead. And Marianne, my little baby, would be asleep, so she would she would be fine. She wouldn't be traumatized. She's really young anyway. In a last moment of crisis before I decided to take the rest of the medication, I prayed again and was just begging for something. And my sister called me and I answered it. She knew what was going on. She asked me very direct, very specific questions. Um, if I was having thoughts of suicide, if I had acted on them. And I was, it took me a while to answer, but I gave very short one-word answers. And she was amazing. Just told me how much she loved me, how much she wanted me to live, that I wasn't crazy, that people cared and she was there for me, although not physically, but she was there and she has worked. She graduated in psychology. She's worked in um, uh, with detention facilities. She, she has a lot of experience with crisis management. And she did a great job of convincing me to flush the rest of the medication down the toilet, which I did, which was difficult because I felt like that was my way out. The solution to my problems, I would get all the answers about afterlife and the spiritual things that I wanted, and I wouldn't be a burden anymore as this crazy wife or this incompetent mom that I viewed myself as. Then um, my husband was called by my brother-in-law, and he came home, and, and then I was okay, and he was there with me, and I went to school the next day <laughs> and I still can't believe that I did <laughs> but I just was determined to carry on and thankfully I was already in therapy so then I saw my counselor and told him what happened and we are still working through all of that but that is my that was my experience it's interesting to me Virginia to note that even in the middle of this crisis, your your thoughts were of the people that you loved most. And you wanted to make sure that, that your husband was okay and that your baby would be okay and your husband would be home to take care of your baby and that Marianne was safe and in bed. Um, oftentimes there's that weird stigma that we hear about people who go on to have thoughts of suicide or die by suicide are, are selfish. I was wondering if you would mind sharing some thoughts on that. Thank you for asking that question, just because that is definitely something I wanted to touch on. And I have been one of those people who has viewed suicide and people who have died by suicide in that way before. I have had that perspective of how could you do this? How could you be so selfish and leave these people who love you? But when you experience it yourself, I know for me, I saw myself as such a burden because I didn't feel like I was healthy emotionally and I felt like I was a weight dragging down my very positive, happy husband. And I felt like my daughter deserved somebody who had a solid faith, who could raise her with you know, confidence and, and, and bearing testimony every day to her. And 
I didn't feel like I was good enough and that they deserved a lot better. And so I saw me ending my life as giving them a better life because I love them, which is clearly a twisted reality. It is a twisted view because when you're in that state, you're so frazzled and you're so emotional. It's like tunnel vision. Everything else is blacked out. All the other facts about your life and real true reality seems to just fade away and you focus on these simple single issues and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until they overwhelm you to the point where you just can't take it anymore. Obviously, it would not have been a better life for my husband and my baby for me to leave them. But in that moment, that's how I felt. In the middle of that emotional crisis, it's so easy to understand how how thinking um, leaving them could, could make their lives easier. And for you, suicide wasn't wasn't the problem. It was the solution to all of these insolvable problems in your life. Now, I think it's really interesting to note that your sister was was such a key part of helping you choose to live. Talk a little bit more about how she helped provide hope to you. You touched on the idea of redemption. Was that something that crossed your mind in these moments as your sister was talking to you, or is that something you thought more about later, this idea of being redeemed and the hope that comes from that? I don't necessarily know if I thought specifically of redemption in that moment, just because everything was is so blurred and just such a high intensity. But I do remember how I felt when she was talking to me. I don't remember all the words that she said. I remember her telling me she loved me over and over. I remember her repeating questions over and over when I wouldn't answer and not getting off the phone. And and she was also very calm. Never any moment did I feel like she was judging me. And she told me that. She was like, I understand how you feel. I have been there. I love you. I want you to live. It is worth it to live. And that was the message that I received. And that's how I felt. I felt like she loved me, that she wasn't going to condemn me for the situation that I was in, for the thoughts I was having, or the impact that it could have on her and the rest of our family. She wasn't thinking about that. Or if she was, I didn't know it. She just made sure I felt loved and wanted and that I still had so many things to live for and that I was safe with her because I wasn't going to be condemned or judged and I was going to be loved unconditionally. What really brought you hope wasn't some sophisticated idea about redemption and becoming a better person. It wasn't, it wasn't all of these immediate solutions. It wasn't advice that brought you hope. It was, it was love, empathetic listening, and a safe connection. It wasn't advice. You didn't need advice. You needed to feel safe. Exactly. And I know it can be, I, I am totally one of those fixer people. <laughs> we both are. When someone, when someone brings an issue, I go through my head. I'm like, okay, you can do this, this, and this, and this to fix it. Let me tell you 
I will fix your problem. And that's a huge temptation when people come to us uh, either in crisis or with an issue that's frustrating them. We want to fix it. We want to help them. But sometimes if they're not asking for that, all they need is love and a listening ear and a physical presence to show that they're there for you. And she did encourage you to dispose of the of the pills, but it wasn't giving advice. It was something that, that she knew deep down that you, that you needed to do. I think that there's kind of a distinct difference there of taking steps to keep you alive, but not necessarily supplying advice on how to solve the, the predicaments that led you to that suicide crisis. So really great, great role on your sister there. Some yeah. great insight. Virginia, let's pick up the story where you came to school the next day. What, what were you feeling like in class, in school? I know I interacted with you that day as well. I, so I, again, just like I said at the beginning, I want to be seen as a strong person. And so I, obviously, it was a very dramatic evening. My husband and I were up late talking and he was comforting me and I'm sure also processing a lot of very intense emotions himself. And But the next day, I was determined to move on and say, well, that happened. Forward. <laughs> As such is my personality of like, okay, moving on. And so I was like, I'm going to class. I need to be there. I um, Attendance is important, so I'm going. And uh, I'm going to go to work afterwards. I think my, uh, my husband wasn't really sure what to do. You know, and, and asked, are you sure you want to go to class? Are you? But I was determined. So <laughs> as a wise man, he said, okay, I'll meet you right after you get out of class. Because he, he walked me there. He wanted to be with me, make sure I was with people uh, for 24 hours at least um, to make sure I was safe. While I was in class, I was trying to function like I would on a normal day, just Nothing has happened in the last 24 hours. I am good. I am chill. I am doing my work back to business as usual. I could not quite pull it off. And I had an interaction with you, McKinley, where we were talking about this project that we are, current, that we are working on, suicide prevention. Kind of, kind of the odd irony of... A very big irony that I was well aware of. <laughs> <laughs> sitting there in class thinking about how I was working on a suicide prevention project for our college and yet had had such a dramatic experience the night before. I remember at one point we were having a disagreement in our team about something and I just repeated in my mind over and over and over again, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. I just felt like I was going to lose it and I am a proud soul. I'm a proud person and did not want to have other people see me cry. And so I held it in as best I could. But I'm pretty sure, well, I know that you noticed that I was not okay. Yeah, I, I'll kind of pick up from my point of view here. Virginia and I are both very confident, spunky women who love to learn and to grow and to help others do the same. And even when we disagree on things, we we normally see eye to eye and there's always a feeling of connection. I think it's why we became such fast friends. 
I noticed during this particular day, for lack of a better phrase, we weren't we weren't jiving. There was there was a little bit of friction almost, and it wasn't something I was necessarily accustomed to. I remember while our group was chatting, two of the girls started talking about something else. I leaned forward in my row and I just looked at this friend that I adored so much and I just said, hey, this doesn't normally happen with us. Are are you doing okay? Are you all right? Virginia went on to explain that she'd had a really crazy 24 hours and that it had been kind of hectic. And I think this was the point where I asked if we could just talk after class said, well, let's, let's talk after all of this. Do you want to talk after this? And you confirmed that, yeah, you would, you would be willing to talk after this. Um, class came to a close. Um, we went out into the hallway, and I could tell immediately by the look on your face that this was something serious. I, I was very used to the confident, strong, go get them attitude kind of girl that was one of my best friends. And I noticed that there was a sense of, of stress and almost brokenness that I don't think I'd ever seen in you before. We snuck into a little art gallery that was in the building that we were in class. It was a nice quiet place and you began to explain. The first thing that came out of your mouth was I should probably be in the hospital right now. And it was a little cryptic but I think I understood what that meant. And as you went on to talk a little bit about what had happened to you, you didn't ever come right out and say that you had attempted suicide and I remember asking Virginia were were you having thoughts of suicide did you attempt suicide and you looked down at the ground and you were very hesitant to answer but you looked you looked back up at me and said yes I it was really shocking to me that that someone I never in a million years would have thought and would be having thoughts of suicide had had just had a crisis the night before and that even with a lot of the training that I'd been through and the work we'd been doing with suicide prevention that that I didn't see I didn't see the signs and I realized that no signs are conclusive and that suicide can affect anyone. Virginia we were talking about this a little earlier today how interesting it was to realize that both of us who consider ourselves a little more well researched in in suicide suicide research, suicide statistics, suicide prevention trainings, that this was something that hit so close to home for both of us, that you had been affected and had been susceptible to thoughts of suicide because of all of these crazy buildup in your life. And it all led to this crisis. And that for me, I hadn't noticed and I hadn't been aware of it. I think that it's so important for connection to be a part of every single stage of a the experience for someone um, leading up to and for those who survive a suicide crisis after the suicide crisis. And I was wondering if you could share some of your thoughts on how connection has played a role throughout that whole process in both um, helping you to feel safe leading up to maybe some aspects of that suicide crisis and how connection saved you and how it helped you recover afterwards. I think it's important to note that going before I had my plan and before I acted on that plan, I already had good connections with family members. So I have an amazing connection with my husband. We have a, a beautiful marriage, but I pushed him away in that in those couple days, especially that day. 
because I was so emotional and just dealing with so many things. I, I didn't let him in or, or express to him that uh, the feelings that I was having or the thoughts that I was having. And sometimes that happens when people are struggling, they push people away, which can be a situational or behavioral clue for others. I did reach out to my sister because I had a good connection with her, a good relationship, and she had been open with me about her struggles and the things that she had gone through. So I knew or I believed that she would not judge me or condemn me and she would know what to do in this situation. And so I sent her that text message. So that's important to note that that connection led to that phone call, which saved my life. Don't wait for a crisis to happen to feel the motivation to create those kind of connections in your life. It, that was relationship where I felt safe was formed because she was honest and open and authentic with me. It's difficult to share vulnerable parts of ourselves, especially stories like this. But that is what led me to trust her and to know that she would know what to do because I did not, I, I didn't want to die. And I think that's important to know. Like, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to leave everybody, but I felt like I had to. I felt like I needed to just to, to escape, to just end this crazy mental explosion in my head. And so me sending her that message was basically my call for help. Um, and then afterwards, obviously my, my sweet husband just showing me that nothing else mattered, that he was there for me 24-7 and how much he cared was a huge connection for me. And also not being angry. I never once felt that he was angry at me or judged me or felt betrayed or any of those feelings I'm sure I would feel if I was in his shoes and probably would have expressed. He never conveyed that. So I felt completely, I, I always feel completely safe and I feel like I can be more open with him. He helped me. McKinley, you helped me. You came over that evening or the next evening. You came over so uh, Seth could go to work. And, and he went to work. He didn't want me to be alone. And you came over to, to be with me, to talk with me, to shoot the breeze, to be there, to offer that companionship and connection so I wouldn't be alone with my thoughts about what had just happened. Then, of course, I would say the other connection was two more. I know this is, like, taking forever. <laughs> I was open with my employer, who has been so amazing for me. Uh, through my pregnancy, through having my baby. He's been so flexible, just amazing. And I told him that I needed to take a few days to get mentally stable. And he was okay with that. And he, he didn't press for information. He was just, he just said, okay, I'll get better. That was a good connection for me. Felt very safe to tell him that I needed time. I didn't have to make up some sort of excuse, but if you have to do that, that's okay. And then my counselor. I talked with him, and he's been able to help unravel a lot of my thoughts 
and teach me ways to cope with them and be able to manage those emotions and not let them drive the bus off the cliff, essentially. (laughs) So I would say all of those connections, so many helped me before in the midst and after that difficult situation. I also want to point out it wasn't just one. It wasn't just one connection. It was many. And that's what people need. You can't shoulder, as somebody, as a friend, you can't shoulder that whole burden on yourself of trying to keep somebody safe. There needs to be a a support system. system. Yes, a team. Exactly. And I also was having professional help as well. Seeking that out is very helpful. Virginia, let's let's talk a little bit more about that interaction with your boss and about some lessons we can learn about taking warning signs seriously. You were sharing the interaction and you you started off talking with your boss and you cracked some sort of a joke about you should you should probably be in the hospital and like haha I should probably be institutionalized right now and your boss thinking you were cracking jokes about it just kind of laughed and chuckled. Talk a, talk a little bit more about the step of courage that you took after that and telling him what really happened. Originally, when I first went in, I went in with my husband, and that's when I told him I needed a few days because we were having a crisis. Uh, and, and I didn't say it was me. I didn't say who it was. I just said we were having a crisis. I needed to take a few days. And he was absolutely willing, said, of course, take that time. And then the next week when I went back into work, And I was talking to him about how I needed to decrease my hours. I needed to be a little bit more flexible to decrease stress in my life. I did crack a joke about, well, last week I should have been institutionalized. Ha ha, you know. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Sure. You know, laughing along with me. And I immediately became somber and said, no, really. I last week I tried to overdose poor guy I just sprung that on him out of nowhere um but he was I I could see probably a little visibly shocked and saddened and just pained that was the interaction that I had and I was grateful again no judgment no condemnation absolute kindness caring love and also flexibility on the side of professionalism in my job What lessons do you feel we can learn from that experience, from your experience about taking jokes about suicide seriously, and that these kind of things could be telling us something a little more about that person and their experience? What would you say to that? So many people mask their pain in humor. So many. It is an easy outlet to almost get your pain or this issue out without trying to be that Debbie Downer or that serious Sally. I don't know. Um, I I just made that one up, serious (laughs) Sally. I don't think that's a thing. But either way, uh, people joke all the time. And I'm grateful for humor. Bless whoever created it. (laughs) But if people joke about serious topics such as suicide, or depression, or abuse, or anything that is and deserves our full consideration and attention. If someone cracks a joke, 
it could be telling of some pain that they're experiencing. So if somebody you know or around you cracks a joke like that, approaching them privately and and in a caring way and, and making sure, hey, you joked about this earlier and I care about you and I just want to make sure that you're doing okay. So are you actually, do you actually need to go to the hospital or are you having thoughts of ending your life? Are you having thoughts of suicide? Have you hurt yourself? Being able to check in with people, that's hard, it's scary, it takes a lot of courage, but again, better safe than sorry. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. Virginia, what do you think stops us from approaching people and asking those kinds of questions? If, if you wouldn't have been brave enough to tell your boss that actually, yeah, I, I maybe should be institutionalized. I, I had a crisis. I had a suicide crisis. If you wouldn't have been brave enough to tell him that, why do you think he would have been afraid of asking you about that more seriously? Or why do you think that so many of us are scared of approaching those questions? What do we fear? I think first it's just simply being unaware because we crack a lot of jokes and sarcasm is prevalent in our society. (laughs) And a lot of times people will purposely joke about serious things. And so it's easy to blow it off as just someone being a troll again. So we just might let it slide as just passing humor, right? A second, we might not ask or approach somebody because we don't want to offend them. We don't want to push, depending on the relationship, we don't want it to be inappropriate, you know, such as a boss and an employee, right? I am not the boss in the situation, but it might be uncomfortable to try to dig into your employee's personal life and ask him those kinds of intense questions, uh, that could be a little, you know, oh, I don't want to go that route. I don't want to open a can of worms or put my employment in danger, whatever thoughts that you might have. I also think that I think it's because it's not my place. Oh, I'm going to offend them. Oh, that's going to be awkward. Oh, it's going to ruin our relationship. What if I plant the idea in their head? And then they think of it because I said something. I think all of those reasons are contribute to why we wouldn't approach somebody. And we know that a lot of research that we've studied together has has shown that you can't plant the idea of suicide in someone's head. I think this is a really great opportunity to talk a little bit more about uh, the the interesting irony of you doing a lot of research and a huge project about suicide. And then obviously, logically, you know about suicide, but suicide isn't isn't logical and thoughts of suicide aren't logical. They don't affect that logical part of our brain. They're very emotional and very crisis-driven. Virginia, I wanted to ask, do you feel like there is any connection between your research about suicide and your suicide crisis? Clearly, that could be a correlation or conclusion that lots of people could come to. Well, she was working on a project, and therefore it was on her mind, so that's what led to this. I would say uh, it actually helped in the midst of it because I remember 
when I was QPR trained uh, on one of the little survey just to gather more data about individuals it asked a question of whether or not you would turn to family if you're having those thoughts or go to a hospital and so when I was in the midst of those huge emotions and just feeling so so overwhelmed I remembered my sister and I remembered that a connection with somebody can save lives. And I knew that if I sent her a specific message that she would know what was going on and, and she would do something. She would help me somehow. So I think that that actually helped in that moment because I knew that I, I needed to, to reach out to somebody because having a connection could help in that moment because that is the biggest thing that saves lives. And for me, that was exactly the truth, the reality that played out. I was already struggling a lot with emotional things from having my baby and trying to figure out my faith and where I was at. Those were already all at play and had been for months. So I think that it would have come to a head at some point or another. Do I believe it had an impact uh, working on a suicide prevention project? Yes, I do. I believe that it helped because it made me aware of more tools that I needed to use. Being more informed about suicide helped you in your moment of crisis. It was not the condemning factor. I think it's important to note, uh, just while we're on this tangent, this topic, this idea of my involvement on the on the project, on this team, uh, and, and my personal experience, that the research out there shows that there is not a connection between more research about suicide and more completed suicides or attempts. So talking about suicide in a, plop, in a way like this, where we're sharing our personal stories, where we're learning about it, does not lead to more. Sometimes we can get confused about uh, that fact because sometimes in the news, in the reporting of the news, and I work in this industry, so I have learned this, uh, when you report the death of somebody who has died by suicide, you do not want to sensationalize it. Uh, and there is research that can confirm that media sensationalization of a suicide death can lead to increased suicides or copycats. And I think people hold on to that fact and that research and therefore say we should never talk about it because we don't want others to think about it or for this to happen again to anyone else. But we have to separate the two. We have to realize there's a difference between media sensationalization and talking about it and learning about it as a means to prevent it, to build connection with others, and to facilitate growth and understanding. There is a big difference. Mm. And so this, what we're doing 
um, the project that we were working on, research, learning about it, does not increase the likelihood of that happening. Um, they're not related. There's like an interesting distinction between, you could almost say, between talking about the event of it happening and then talking about the feelings, the research, the the lack of connection that sometimes leads to that. They're, they're two very different things. That was a great distinction. It was me having my personal experience that I think really drove home the fact that I wanted to facilitate a platform for people to share what they went through so that we could disperse all these misconceptions and perspectives about this topic so people could try to understand what it's like to be in that situation so we could have more compassion and more empathy and love because I went through that and I wanted people to understand and so then I pitched the idea of doing this podcast and then I met with people and the more that I talked with them it has been so amazing and actually very healing for me to hear all these different perspectives and stories because it's validated my experience to know I am not alone. I am not the only person who has felt this way. Oh my gosh, so many similarities. And to know that, wow, okay, you're right. Anyone can be affected by this. It's not something to be ashamed of. Use it as a stepping stone. Use it as a lesson. Use it as a way to help others, to form connections with others so that they can feel safe. That was part one of my story. Part two comes out next Friday. I know, really, two parts, but man, you don't make a podcast about something unless you've got something to say about it. I'm your host, Virginia Henry. Thanks for listening to Stories with a Voice. Tune in each week for new episodes.